few weeks ago in the newsletter, I wrote about a group that I'm a part of. It's like eight Peace USA pastors who visit virtually every month and in person twice a year, and we discuss just the craft of Christian preaching. And every month we critique one of the members' sermons. It's a terrifying thing, but this month is my month to be critiqued. And they told me they wanted video and not just audio. So I'm grateful to Harlan Hambright. He told me to burn some time. So that was my attempt at burning time. Our second reading today comes from what is commonly known as Paul's first letter to Timothy. In recent decades, though, the scholarship of this letter uh, has begun to wonder about whether or not Paul actually wrote it that it's possible disciples of Paul later wrote this letter in his name. And yet when we get into it, we find genuine Pauline themes, themes of God's grace, of God's redemption, and of God's salvation. So friends, let us listen once more for God's word, hearing these verses from 1 Timothy, beginning with the 12th verse of the first chapter. The writer begins, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him. And receive eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Friends, this too is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Good and gracious God. Open our hearts anew to your grace this day, that in the cracks and in the crevices your love might take hold, that it might be at work within us, that it might grow us to new understanding and to new ways of living. We pray this, O God, because we know with you and you alone they are possible, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. By day, James Hampton swept floors and cleaned toilets. By night, he meticulously assembled his singular masterpiece. Hampton had served in the Army during World War II, a segregated unit mainly sent to Guam and Saipan to to fix runways there during the war. After the war ended in 1945, he returned to his then-adopted hometown of Washington, 
D.C., and he was quickly hired on by the General Services Administration as a janitor. And for nearly 20 years after, 1945 until his death in 1964, James Hampton spent nearly every single day cleaning buildings, federal buildings, in and around Washington, D.C. But also during those 20 years, quietly, steadily, he crafted in a physical way his vision of God's kingdom. You see, every day that he went into work, in addition to his task of cleaning and scrubbing and and dusting, he would also pick up overlooked items, thousands upon thousands of used gum wrappers, cups that would get left on windowsills. He'd pick through the trash sometimes and find crumpled up paper. On his walk home, he'd dig through more trash and he'd find used jelly jars. Occasionally, he found a piece of furniture that had been discarded on the curb. And all of it, over nearly 20 years, he collected. And he would take home with him to this garage that he rented near his house in northwest D.C., And there in that garage, usually in the late hours of the night, long after midnight when he would typically return home from work, he handcrafted, he handcrafted this masterpiece. The results of his work weren't found until after his death when someone went to that garage and they rolled up the door. And there in front of them, was what is printed for you on the front of your bulletin today. A piece of work that he titled The Throne of the Third Heaven of the Nation's Millennium General Assembly. Quite the title. For scale, some of those pieces are taller than a person. And it's not in a garage anymore. It's in the Smithsonian Museum of Art. And there, beside its display, is a plaque that describes this piece as America's singular greatest work of visionary art. Work entirely composed of overlooked and discarded items. Items that probably were not much more overlooked than the man who collected them every day he went to work. Ordinary, overlooked, discarded, some may even say ugly things, turned into something splendid. Does that remind you of anything? Of anyone, perhaps? How about Paul? Jesus came into the world to save sinners, our passage reads today, of whom I am the worst. You know, regardless of authorship, there is something genuinely Pauline in these verses. Because when you look across all the writings of Paul, 
all the writings, including those that are 100% written by Paul, you discover that he is very clear about two things. The first thing that he is very clear about through all of his writings is God's ceaseless grace. There's that great word planted in these verses, abundant. That's what God's grace is like, according to Paul. It's overflowing. I was on a call earlier this week, and someone described this abundance of God's grace that, that Paul describes as being like when you go to a restaurant and the waiter or waiter, they say, would you like more water? And you say, sure, and they start pouring it into your cup and say, just say when, and you're sitting there, when? when? Okay, that's uh, when, and it just spills over, and then it spills over the entire table. That's God's grace, according to Paul. It gets over everything. The other thing that Paul is singularly focused on in his writings is that God knows exactly who he is. I was a violent man, a persecutor of the faith. Paul is clear over and over again about just how many shortfallings he has in life, about how even when he knew what was right, he still failed to do it. God knows who he is. God knows who we are. And yet God chooses to work through us anyway. There's something refreshing, don't you think, in Paul's honesty? I am the worst. I was visiting earlier this week with a pastor from our presbytery, and he was telling me about a time at the first church that he served. He's at a different church now, but... The first church he served, he said there was this Sunday where after worship, uh, this member of our church, an elder, I think even, came running up to me afterwards, waving the bulletin. And he opened up to the prayer of confession, and he began debating me about how these things in the prayer of confession don't actually apply to him. I don't do these things, he said. My theology professor was prone to say in seminary that the prayer of confession, this confession we have already prayed as part of our worship today, it is the most important thing. It's more important than the sermon, than the hymns. It's more important than the liturgy. It's more important than the sacraments even. The prayer of confession is the most important thing we do in worship every week because it is the one time every week when we are honest, when we tell the truth, that we are broken. You know, it's interesting. There's all this research happening about why the church is in decline, right? We've all seen the headlines. Church membership going down, down, down. Churches closing their doors. And if you dig into some of the research being done around this topic, what you find is that the decline is not due to worship style, right? That's not the reason people cite for not coming to church. It's not whether your church has a pastor who wears a robe or, or wears, you know, hip clothes. That's not a reason for why the church is in decline. It's not whether you go to a church that has pews or chairs. It's often not even because of theological issues within the church. The singular reason that is cited for the church's decline, particularly when talking to young people, is that there is a problem of authenticity. That too often people come to churches 
And when they walk in the door, the first thing they're greeted with is, well, isn't it nice to see you here for once? I've been here for decades now. There's an air of hypocrisy. Things are preached from the pulpit, but you don't often see it lived out that well. There's this air that when people come to church, they find churches that are full of people who are eager to convince you that they are not the worst person in town. But we are. We are the worst. We do screw up. And yet, according to Paul, God can still use us. God does still use us. See, the power of the gospel is not found in perfection, but in vulnerability. It is precisely because of our willingness to confess that we are broken, to show others our wounds instead of covering them up. It is precisely because we ask for forgiveness. It is precisely because of those things that we encounter the fullness of God's grace. Friends, Jesus Christ did not come to polish the perfect. Jesus Christ came to heal the broken. Just say when. I have this friend, actually part of this group that we're recording this for, so he's hopefully going to laugh when he hears this. He preached an awful sermon once. Like, terrible. Really bad. He knew it. Everyone in the pews knew it. And he still had a second service to go to. Really bad sermon. In between the services, he ran into his wife. This was many years ago now. They had just been married. It was his first call, too. He ran into his wife in the hallway between services, and he asked her the dreaded question of all pastor's spouses, what do you think? (laughs) And there was this long pause. And finally she said to him, I think, I think I love you. And those were the exact words that he needed to hear. Because that is what Christ Jesus does for us. God, I'm scared. I'm scared to change my mind. I'm scared to admit I was wrong. God, I feel so empty. I worry that I'm not enough. God, I I have no power anymore over this thing inside of me. God, I I screwed up, right? Taken so many turns and, and turned around so many times that I don't even know which direction home is anymore. God, I've done bad things, ugly things, evil things. God, I am the worst. There. I said it. It's all out on the table, God. What do you think? I think 
I love you. Friends, love like that, it should, it should reassure us, right? But it should also change us. There's that language in this verse right after Paul says he's the worst. He says, but for that very reason I was shown mercy so that in me the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him. This love, it should call us to be examples. And if you're looking for a model of the kind of life that that example might look like, I think James Hampton is a pretty good place to start. Because if we are loved like Paul says that we are loved, then we must live lives that that notice those who are overlooked. We must live lives that notice the ones who the world throws away, the ones who are left behind, the the brokenhearted in our midst. We must live lives that notice the ones who are so bent out of shape on the wheels of life, as Nat Scott likes to say. So bent out of shape on the wheels of life that we can't distinguish anymore whether they are a fragment of an old gum wrapper or the filament from a burned-out light bulb. We have to notice those who often go unnoticed. And then with our words, with our actions, perhaps just with our presence, we have to say to those people, and those people might be you. We have to say to them, ah, I see where you fit. Mm. I know just the place on the throne where you belong. Because the thing is, if, if Paul were standing here, I think the other thing he would tell us is that the day will come. It may be long after we are gone, but the day will come. When that garage door, it will roll up again. And our life's work will be sitting there on display. And that question will be asked yet again. Except this time it will be asked to the creator of all that ever has been, all that is, all that forevermore will be. So, What do you think? Friends, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.